the fruits of this practice of embodiment that we've been emphasizing today are that increasingly and increasingly completely we actually inhabit the very center of life. The fruits of this practice of embodiment are that the gap dissolves between the sense of life as it is unfolding and the sense of the one who's experiencing it. When we spoke a little last night about that human dilemma of, on the one hand, feeling very affected by what goes on around us, and neither being, being able to completely unify our sense of the one experiencing with that which is being experienced, nor able to really isolate ourselves from experience. And so our usual experience, if we look closely, is a kind of limbo where we're not really uh, at one with ourselves, as it were. We feel actually uh, disjointed from our sense of self often. We refer to our sense of self as if it's another, my body as if I'm a one who has a body. Or my mind, as if I'm a one who has a mind. And if I have a mind and I have a body, well, if I take the body and the mind out of the equation, because they're just something I have, then what remains that I'm assuming to be the one who has? So a limbo where one's neither really at one with oneself, as it were, nor one with that which is experienced, this life which we take to be around us as well as within us. And we often find, if we look carefully, that we're seeking that kind of unification with, that oneness with experience, through trying to get it, have it, become it. Trying to absorb into some experience that we assume is out there waiting for us. You may have noticed in your meditation the attempt to get somewhere. As if there's some right meditative experience, if only your mind would quiet or your legs would be at ease, etc. An attempt to, to get, have, become, unite with something. You may notice that if you look very carefully in the conversation and communication with one another that you may have been having after the meals. The tendency to 
advance with our attention towards the other. As if our intimacy with the other depends on somehow going out to, to meet them. And it's, it's counterintuitive, actually, that our real intimacy with life lies in what we've been calling this practice of embodiment, of staying in the centre of experience. Staying in the ground of experience, in this field of knowing, this field of awareness, in which the sense of self and the sense of world and the sense of other all appears. We spoke last night about body as the kind of uh, supreme grounding for attention because it's here, because it's life is known, seen, felt, conceived of, imagined. Here. So we might speak about body and we might speak about here, but if we look carefully, we start to find that those seem to be rather mysterious terms. We think we know what body is, but in a way, that's the problem. We think of body as a thing, a discrete thing, a thing that has uh, an edge, a thing that has a shape, that has a gender, that has an age, that has a particular state of health, that has a degree of attractiveness that we have attributed to it, etc., etc., that has a sexual orientation, that has all manner of layers of identity to it. But that's not the body we're interested in. We're interested in the living experience of body, which it turns out doesn't have an edge, doesn't have an identity. I look at myself and I see, I look at myself, when I reflect on body as that which is seen, I see it's going going grey, rather fast, hair is going grey. But when I just tune into experience of body, there's no greyness here. Right? It doesn't feel grey. Right? Body doesn't feel actually in the experience. It doesn't feel male. It doesn't feel British. It doesn't feel grey. In fact, it feels rather wonderful. In contrast to those three other three attributes. <laughs> The direct experience of body, which just the, the natural energetic aliveness of body, is pleasant in its nature. <coughs> its pleasantness it comes from its basic aliveness. When we attune to the, the basic aliveness of body, though just the fact, like we were saying last night, that it's animated. 
There's a kind of marvelousness there. A mysteriousness. So, in the postures that Gail's been leading, in our sitting practice and walking practice, in the seamless transition from one activity to another, this practice of embodiment, just so that we're clear, isn't very much to do with what we ordinarily mean when we say body. It's to do with bringing our attention back to this field of aliveness that's most primary in our experience. This hearingness. So I'm using body and hear as synonyms in a way. This hearingness on top of which the various grades and um, layers of experience get um, piled up. And then you might notice some of those degrees of experience that have been layering themselves on top of the basic hereness of your life today. The attitudes that you may have had coming and going. The feelings of enthusiasm, excitement, joy, gratitude that may have flickered into life in the moments of stillness or delight. And the contrast with moments of struggle, maybe, of confusion, of uh, agitation, of hopelessness, maybe. It's only the first day, but it's amazing when there's some discomfort in the sitting posture and when the mind has really gotten hold of that discomfort and made it into a big story how powerfully we can produce a sense of hopelessness and despair. It feels so real. Oh, why did I come here? What's the matter? How long is the meditation going to last? What's wrong with that guy that he thinks it's reasonable to sit for 40 minutes at a time? And it seems so real and so solid and so important that I respond to this hopelessness, this frustration. Even though quite quickly by itself it's gone. And ten minutes later I'm sitting with my meal thinking, oh, what a wonderful place this Mulan is. What good fortune to be here. What great food. What beautiful river. Because thought likes to think. <laughs> yes, thought likes to think. Of course it does. That's its nature. What else would thought like to do? Right. Thought likes to think. But left to its own devices, it tends to get carried away with itself. And that too, you may have had the opportunity to notice, right? The way thought can get very carried away with itself. 
It's like it, it gets self-important. It's so impressed. Thought is so impressed with its capacity to think that it just produces more and more thoughts. More and more irrelevant thoughts. It produces thoughts just for the sake of producing thoughts. Just to fill up space. It's <coughs> thought is an exuberant capacity. <coughs> so, even though we're emphasizing this as a practice of embodiment, immediacy, grounded awareness, bright awareness, open awareness, gentle awareness. And even though that's our focus, it turns out probably that some of your uh, attention today, or maybe much of your attention today, has been either directed to thought or embroiled in, caught up in, carried away with thought. So, I thought I'd speak a little bit about some skillful means of working with thought production so as to use it in the service of embodied awareness rather than it seeming, as it often does, to be the hijacker of embodied awareness. There's nothing wrong with thought. Thought is a wonderful capacity, right? But it's a kind of a phantom of experience. You know, you can't find your thought. You can't show your thought. There's something intangible. Because thought is um, like a, a, a... an indicator of something. Thought isn't the thing itself in the same way that uh, something more tangible is. So when we have the thought of a tree, right? the thought refers to something, a tree. And the tree is there, we can see it, we can touch it. But the tree isn't contained in the thought, right? The thought is just an indicator of the tree. And it's very useful to have an indicator. Our relationship with the things around us and the people that we're connected to and the activities that we do would be very, would be really, really unsophisticated without the capacity to, to refer to what we're seeing, what we're doing, what we're engaging with. So that's the first layer of thought, right? Just the, the way thought refers to. And we can really use that capacity of referring to in the service of embodied presence, in the service of hearness, in the service of a, a kind of free and expansive abiding in the service of a free and expansive abiding yes and demeure 
libre et expansive. I don't know what was coming next after that. <laughs> in the service of kind of abiding, in which we get to really meet, dans laquelle. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, there was a very long sentence. It started there a long time ago. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Now I know where it was going. Right. That, that capacity of thought, cette capacité, to refer to something that I'm doing that I'm seeing. This capacity is normal, it's useful, and we can use it in the service of our practice. And somebody uh, referred to that this morning, uh, José, was it? In terms of the, the noting element of practice. Right. So, as one takes one's seat, sitting using the thought to refer to the activity. The thought is secondary, right? but using the, the, the way, the nature of thought as an indicator to point to what's happening. Sitting. Establishing posture. Feeling the ground. Straightening the back. Opening the chest. Oh, relaxing the belly. So that the narrative element is just a way of pointing to the direct experience. Walking. Eating. Tasting. Enjoying. Etc. And it may be that that indicating capacity arises with things that are uh, a little extra to that basic practice. So in the walking it may be that we find ourselves oh, uh, having some feeling response to the sunlight. And again, letting the thought indicate that as a way to really include the experience. Oh, appreciating the sunshine. And letting that pointing of the thought, appreciating the sunshine, lead you in. So that that appreciation is an embodied experience. Natural. Freely unfolding. Uh, a part of, an expression of, the way life is knowing itself and expressing itself here in this organism through these eyes through these feet etc but of course it may be that because we tend to be rather tricky and complicated characters it may be that your thoughts life has been a little more convoluted than that. 
And what easily happens with our thought life, like I was saying earlier, has the tendency to get carried away. And the feature of the way thought gets carried away is that rather than just referring to what's seen, known, engaged with, it starts to refer to a more and more abstract level of experience. I hope the bell will ring soon. Well, what does that refer to? Right? We think it refers to the bell. But actually, if we look carefully, we're not referring to the bell. We're referring, at the thought is referring actually to some inner anxiety. I hope the bell rings. The thought is referring to some unease. The thought is referring to the tendency to give ourselves away, to postpone our ease and freedom and hang it on the ringing of the bell. If we don't notice that, we keep trying to clutch hold of the thing, the bell, the bell, the ringing, the ringing. We think that's what it's referring to. We don't notice that it's actually referring to anxiety, uh, impatience. So the impatience and anxiety grows unattended. And what does impatience and anxiety do? It produces impatient, anxious thought. I hope the bell rings. Uh, anxiety. And then, more thought, well, what if it doesn't ring? Uh, how long is it going to be? Has he fallen asleep? Mm. <laughs> Forgotten? Etc. So, first way of engaging with thought, too, is the skillful means of kind of planting the thought in the activity, in the experience, in what it's referring to. Sitting. Breathing. When the thought starts to get a little more convoluted, pay attention to what it's actually referring to. And that takes some skill, right, to recognise the mind state, the reaction. And some of you spoke this morning about oh, some physical struggle or working with anxiety or uh, the layer of fear that arises when consciousness starts to really open up and become quite vast. Thought will can come up with endless versions of what that means, what to do about it, etc., etc. But more and much more important than the content of all that thought is what it is actually indicating, what's it actually pointing to. Because that which it's indicating, that we can work with. Oh, anxiety. Confusion fear. Those 
mind, those states, which we call mind states, actually have more, there's more significance to the way they're showing up physically. We call the mind states as if they're just purely mental, but it's the indicating of them that is very mental. What we actually experience when we speak about anxiety, for example, is what we described this morning as a kind of electric, jittery feeling. So in that way too, the thought leads us back to direct experience, to what's happening in body. Body means in this field of experience this field of immediacy. Otherwise, this cycle tends to speed up. Right? That's the way thought gets carried away. You think of some thought, oh, oh, I've got to get to the front of the lunch queue. Make sure I get enough. Right. Again, some anxiety, some internal pressure. I've got to. And then we can spin out in the kind of fantasies of being left bereft at the back of the queue with the empty bowls, <laughs> etc. Right. So then we're kind of attuned to how do I get up and get out and get to the front of the queue while still looking like I'm being mindful and <laughs> moving gently, uh, etc. <laughs> so that's another way of working with the when thought indicates something where there's a, an imperative I've got to. It should be like this. M my experience should be like that. I want to have it like that. When you see that the, when the thought arises with that imperative, just to actually take a moment to see, is that true? Do I have to get to the front of the queue? Is it worth compromising my well-being now? For the, um, for just the familiar anxiety. You know, it's the first day. We don't even know. Well, maybe there's plenty, plenty, plenty of food. Right? It's not actually that that movement's anything to do with food. Right? It's probably to do with a familiar, anxious pull. So that sense of actually, it's like a way of just slowing down the thought life. That doesn't mean that you have to make less thoughts happen. But when you see what your thought is pointing towards, indicating, hmm, just to be willing to, to feel into it, to see what's actually being indicated here. Is it something that's worth following? The Buddha calls this process of the layering of thought 
the way thought gets carried away, building and building on itself. The, the Pali word he uses is papancha. Papancha. And it's usually translated as proliferation of thought or the layering of thought. And I don't know the exact etymology of papancha, but punch, punch in, uh, in Indian languages means five. One of my teachers calls papancha making a right old five of things. I don't know how to translate that. En faire un cinq. Ça ne veut rien dire en français, mais bon. To ma- it doesn't, not really, but it's kind of clever in English. To make a right old five. It's like, on faire un bazar. On faire un cinq. Hein? On faire des tonnes. Yeah. On faire tout un plat. On faire tout un cinq. Voilà. That's the, yeah. Yeah, because it's the same in English. It doesn't mean anything, but it sort of nearly means something else. So, on faire tout un cinq. Yeah, good. So I think there's some suggestion in the papancha. It's like to to multiply. That's what thought does. It m- it tends to multiply, to 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 further complicate itself. And as you know, as you know from your lives, as you know from your practice, as you know just from today, thought is an expert at further complicating itself. One can't imagine a simpler activity than sitting, breathing. And yet, and yet, the fivifying, <laughs> la sanctification, So we can plant our thought back in the lived experience. Oh, sitting, bowing, eating. Hmm, tree, beauty, response of the heart, etc. We can be curious about what the thought is actually indicating. We want the bell to ring, right? Looking below the object, when there's some heat to it, when there's some push to it, then look for the state that has caught you. The state of mind that's reduced this open field of hereness, where our life's actually unfolding, or that appears to have reduced it to this narrow, tight track called when the bell rings or when, whatever it is. And also, thirdly, using thought to kind of, to unpick the fivifying, the papancha of experience. And the beautiful thing with that is, it doesn't matter, actually, how how many layers in you've got 
And it doesn't matter how unnecessarily complicated you've made things. So please let yourself off the hook when that happens. It's most simple to not do that layering. Right? It's most simple to notice it just as the thought arises. When's the bell going to ring? And we like we know, oh, that's that road. I don't need to go down. I mean, just let, let, let it be a simple unfolding in consciousness. Oh, a future thought. An anxious thought. And when we really know it as such, it doesn't get any purchase in consciousness. But maybe we don't catch it that quickly. And we start to kind of tighten around it. We start to fixate. But there too, if that extra layer of fixation has taken root, actually, if we meet it there, our anxiety. If you let yourself feel it, let yourself feel the tightness. Let yourself feel, is this necessary to hang on this tightly? Then in meeting that layer, oh, if we really feel the tension we've created in it, naturally it lets go. We really feel, nobody wants to be tense like this. But we're so habituated, like we were saying this morning with someone's shoulders, so habituated to our tension, we don't even know it's there. But once we know, we don't need to do a debate about whether to let it go. And there's a kind of natural wisdom that points us oh, towards ease, towards letting go. We speak about letting go as if it's something that I do, because I like to take credit for everything. That's the nature of self. I've got this issue, I want to let it go. Actually, we don't need to let go. All we need to do is recognize what the holding on is actually like. When we see how tightly we're holding on, oh, it lets go. So, to work with Papancha, in a way, is a study of seeing our investment in thought. A study of seeing how tightly we hold on. And the unfolding rhythm of our day here is an extraordinary opportunity, really, just to see where does holding on happen? What are my favorite places to hold on? And not to make it wrong, not to make some idealistic idea that I should be letting go, but to make friends with, to be familiar with, to study, to explore the holding on. so that it can release, so that that layer undoes itself, so that the, the, the house of cards of our papancha can actually, in a moment of really clear seeing, can collapse. Collapse into this open field of hereness. This freely abiding awareness. This freely unfolding experience.
And in this way, we're invited back to ourselves. So may these reflections support you in coming back to yourself, in establishing an intimacy with what we call body, or what we call here. That is a simplest, uh, an immediacy, a naturalness, an open field of experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.